Welcome to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCRR. I'm Alex Caring. And I'm Bobby Hill. What's up, Alex? Well, we just got back from San Diego. We did. Yeah. Now, we weren't just in San Diego, like, together, having fun. No. 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 But I did see you while there. We did. Yeah. So Bobby was, as you would expect, out for a a jaunt, uh, an early morning jaunt. Were you running? Were you jogging? I was walking. You were just walking. Okay. I was enjoying it. I had sandals on. I I was enjoying the weather. What would that mean if you were out on a jaunt also? Yes, but I was just walking. We were chiefly walking. Right. That's what we were doing. Walking and talking. Enjoying the Embarcadero. It was beautiful. It was lovely. So pretty. Um, Did you have any takeaways from San Diego, from your meetings, anything like that? Uh, We had a couple of discussions and some things that are coming down the pike uh, from the MLS world. And uh, Bobby, I know that you guys had a vote on it. I'm going to withhold my opinions about some of them because I might start controversy, uh, but but, but we got to do them. Uh, So, you know, we've got a a lot of our uh, members probably saw some Inman emails Mm -hmm. coming out about uh, how uh, buyer agency uh, commission offerings are going to be displayed um, on MLS owned uh, Mm -hmm. websites. And then it's going to be an option that MLSs will have to provide to broker owned IDX sites, um, which I think is a a positive thing. That's uh, a, uh, an organic path uh, for, for the industry, in my opinion. Um, and then there were other things, though, like the MLS governing advertising outside of the MLS that says that buyer agency is a free service. Mm-hmm. Of course, buyer agency is not mm-hmm. a free service, no. but it doesn't make any sense for the MLS to be governing our advertising when it doesn't have anything to do with the listing. Uh, that's the last thing MLS should be doing, in my personal opinion. Uh, and, and that was expressed, but yes. widely ignored. And there are <laughs> there are reasons for that just because MLSs exist outside of being attached to an association so that sure. we can have fair playing ground for everyone. That's why the MLS got involved in doing that. And you can thank the DOJ for a lot of this. Like a lot of this is just a part of the DOJ pulling back their agreement and sure. yet we're trying to do the right thing by getting our settlement together after all. So I hear it. yes, I understand but, MLS shouldn't be sticking their nose in it. And yet there's a no. reason for it because we're not all consistent. And so why is it fair for the people that are part of an MLS, not attached to an association to say, my services are free, even though they're not when the, those of us attached to an association have to say that. So that's the reason for it is just because of those outlier um MLSs that are not attached to an association and they can do whatever they want to do that was it hmm. so that's yeah. that's the reasoning that I was given from those inside the rooms and the trenches and things like that so still think it's kind of interesting it is uh, interesting. <laughs> no it always is it's not it's not clear cut it's not just this should be this that should be no. that so you know whatever um well, what else there were there was something else too um no I don't know Oh, it's all right. It's all good. I was like, was, I had to track it on where it's at. So, huh? There were interesting things that 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 yeah. happened, and then what? Uh, I loved the uh, Petco Park event. Yep. That was super cool. Yep. I had a lot of fun uh, with that, and uh, so everything you know, I've heard always... is that was everybody's favorite NAR event ever. Everybody's like, "Oh, we're going so to cool. a ballpark," and then they got there and they're like, "This is amazing." It was Did a lot you... of fun. 
Did you make it to the major investor event at Belmont Park, the little amusement parky thing? No, we left on Saturday. Okay, so you didn't make it to that. You didn't get to ride the world's worst wooden roller coaster. You might think that's the Timberwolf or the Prowler, but no, it's called the Giant Dipper, and it's the, the worst thing. Awesome. Okay, but it, it beats you up, right? Because it's wooden, it beats you up. Right. Yeah, right. that's what I'm talking about. The beat. I have never been beat up. I, I love coasters. Like, I'm a huge ride person. I did that, and I was like, I have to go back to my hotel room. Like, I was, it just kept going around. Like, it doesn't look like a very big wooden roller coaster, but it just keeps doing loops and loops, and it, Ugh. we were, everyone got off it, and they go, we're never doing that again. Like, it was <laughs> bad. But so I have an interesting story to share, though, from my, my, my trip to San Diego. <clears throat> Are you ready for this one? Sure. So if you remember in front of all the hotels in the convention center, there was this little red trolley that or uh, shuttle trainy looking thing, this trolley shuttle thing that was on tracks. You remember seeing that? Remember crossing over the, the tracks for that? Yeah. Do you know where that train that trolley takes you? No, it takes you to Tijuana. Yes. Yeah, see? And I happened to oh. have my several, me and a couple other friends, we had our passports with us and we're like, we should take the trolley to Tijuana. Sounds like a great idea. And several other friends was like, that sounds like a horrible idea. Bobby, you're, you're blonde, you're blue eyed. You're going to get kidnapped and you're never going to come back. And I was like, no, no, no. I lived in Mexico for a summer. Like I love Mexico. I'm happy to go. So we take the, we take the trolley, we get there. And within one block is the border. Like it's just right there. There's a big, big wall, big word, Mexico. We all take this. They always take the picture and we're like, we're good. One person said, you know what? We should just put a toe in Mexico. We'll just walk in and we'll walk right back out. And I've flown into Mexico many times. There's always the border patrols. There's the entrance and the exit. They're all right there. You show your passport, you come around, you show your passport, you get back out. Nope. When you walk across the border, that is not how it is. We needed to show no identification, no nothing to walk into Mexico. We had to take our bags and put them through like a, you know, the scanning thing like TSA has, but that was, that was it. Then you walk outside the building and there's this big billboard that says, welcome to Tijuana. We should have taken a photo of that sign because that was of things to come. Then we start looking around the building to find the entrance to get back in. And it's not obvious. So we start walking around. We can't find it. So I make some friends and I ask, how do we get back in? How do we get back out? They point. There's a line, a really long line. And I asked, how long is that line? And they said, it's a four hour wait. My flight was in three hours. It was a four hour wait. And I was like, oh God. So I made other friends because that's what you do when you're in Mexico and you need to get out quickly. And they explained to me that there was a bus that we could pay money. And the bus has a special lane at the border crossing to just drive across the border. So if you want to get out quickly, you pay money and you get on a bus. So we paid money. We got on the bus. The bus sat there for 35 minutes until it filled all the way up. And then we drive a quarter of a mile. That's that literally, we never made it more than a quarter of a mile from the border. We drive the quarter mile, we get in the lane for buses, and then we sit and we sit and they open the doors and vendors get on the buses and they're selling you churros. They're selling you drinks. They're little girls selling bracelets. A man got on selling books, 45 minutes pass. We're still sitting on the bus. And I ask another guy who says he does this all the time. He says, I've never seen three buses lined up in front of us. I don't know what's happening. Then we notice that four hour line gets short and we can see the end of the line outside my window of the bus. And somebody goes, we need to get out and we need to get in line because the line's moving really fast. So we jump off the bus, we get in the line, we get five people away from crossing and they decide to stop for a while and not let anybody else across until they can, uh, what's inside the building get through those people. And I'm like, oh my God, we wait for 10 minutes 
Then we notice our bus now has the ability to cross over the border. So we all start going running back to the bus so we can get back on it. We're knocking on the door. The bus driver won't let us back on. And a border patrol agent says, do you have a ticket on that bus? And I said, yes. And I pulled out my ticket. He goes, let me see your passport. And I showed it to him. He made the bus driver show the manifest. And my name was on his manifest that proved I was supposed to be on his bus in order to cross the border. So they allowed me and the other people behind me to get back on the bus. And then we crossed over and then we got off the bus. And then inside the border patrol was a special line for us to go through just to check our passports and whatever. And we get to, up to the border patrol agent and we tell him the story and he goes, but did you try the tacos? And we're like, no, we didn't try tacos. We were planning on being in Mexico. We made a joke that's a six minute tour. We were there for two hours. <laughs> it took two hours and never going a quarter of a mile away to get back across the border. We finally make it back to the hotel so I can get my luggage and run to the airport as fast as I can. And I'm telling the, the bellhop my story and he goes, did you try the tacos? I'm like, what, what is it with the tacos? So apparently a trip needs to be taken back to Tijuana to have tacos because apparently it's a thing. Then I get to the airport and our flight that was a 6.30 flight got delayed to, to seven, then eight, then nine, then 10. And it ended up being almost 11 o'clock before we finally took off because they had to end up removing a guy from our plane because he wouldn't wear his mask correctly. Oh, yeah, one of those people. One of those, but it was just this comedy of this happening and that happening yeah. and that happening. So you could have hung it. out in Tijuana. You could have hung out in Tijuana just a little bit longer. We could and have had some tacos. Four hour line and had tacos. Well, except we'd spent literally all the cash we had just to get on a bus. Like we weren't, you don't, the whole convention didn't take cash. Like you had to just have credit. So we didn't really, nobody had cash on them. And then they're like, it's 20 bucks a person. I had $40 on me. That was it. That was all the cash I took to Mexico. So even when the guy got on the bus with churros, I couldn't even buy a churro because we were out of money. So anyway, doesn't sound like a lot of fun, Bobby. Well, my first day there, we went to Coronado Island and huh? uh, I got burned oh. uh, right away but mm -hmm. I didn't even notice it. Everybody just thought I was oh. like, I don't know, red. Got uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. You know what? It was a great trip and uh, learned some interesting things. Um, and uh, you had to stay so much longer than yeah. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just a board of directors, but then I needed to be there on uh, Thursday morning for a meeting. So it was like coming in on Wednesday, just made the most sense. So, right. um, so, so right. Alex, the day yeah. that this episode comes out is going to uh -huh. be our KCRER holiday party. And I believe you're going to be installed as our Heartland MLS president during this event. How are you feeling about that? Feeling great about that. It's going to be really fun. Of course, this episode's going to come out and people are going to hear what I think about one of the MLS policies that just came out. And so it's probably going to be a little, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. Of course, I didn't, I didn't say any of my other opinions about some of this stuff. But you, you're not on the director, so you didn't actually have a vote. So you're just allowed to have opinions because you didn't vote. Like, had you been like oh. me and you voted, <laughs> when we leave that room, we're of one voice. So that's true. That's true. So that's a good point. Well, yeah. now I feel better. That's yeah. right. But I am looking forward to that very much. And uh, it's going to be fun. It'll, it's been an honor yeah. to serve on MLS for as long as I have. And, and I look forward to uh, um, stepping into Angela's shoes. She's done a great job. And uh, I think, think good things are to come. You know what I just realized this means? We get to do an episode next year that's just an interview with you because we always interview the MLS president. So we have a That's whole true. episode de devoted, devoted 
to you next year. Oh, oh boy. I know, right? <laughs> Let's learn things hey, about Alex. Have Michael, we get to have Michael Pierce back on too. We do get to have Michael Pierce back on because he'll be installed as our KCRAR president. If you remember a couple of years ago, whenever I was KCRAR president, Michael was our uh, Heartland MLS president. And now he's jumped to the other side and he's going to be coming through as our KCRAR president. It's going to be a good year with you and Michael at the helm. It really is. It'll be fun. It'll be yeah. fun. I'm looking forward to it. All right. I know we need to start wrapping up this intro. So who do we have coming on today as our guest? Do you remember? Well, I, I'm really excited because we've got Will Reuter coming on and we've had a lot of conversations in the past uh, through the advocacy committee uh, with Will. Um, Who's Will? You didn't say a- what he does. Will Reuter is uh, the executive vice president of the Home Builders Association of Greater Kansas City. Awesome. And yes. And uh, the other thing that I remember about Will, uh, two years ago, he came to the uh, roundtable event uh, there at KCRAR, and uh, he was very sharp there. I really look forward to hearing what he has to say today. Um, I think there are some important things in the uh, that the HBA is working on uh, that could help us with our inventory woes, um, you know, in, in the future. So awesome. Hey, guess what else we have to do real quick? Oh, I think you probably have a book bit. I do have a book bit. <laughs> do, 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 do. Bobby's book bit. Casey. Ooh, whoa. I liked the deep one. All right. So my book for today, I have one other book, but that I'm going to have for the rest of the year, but I'm saving that for our next guest. And you'll understand when we eventually have that guest on, if we can get them booked, not our problem, um, but I'm going to save my book for that. But the book for today is Disney U as in like university. And the book's about Disney university, but they call it Disney U. And it's about how we, the, the customer centric focus of Disney and how that contributes to Disney's massive success and how we can kind of take some of those principles of Disney and implement them into our own business. So my quote from the book is, qualities and values every leader should strive to attain. Crystal clear direction plus an unwavering commitment and passion. Disney is known for its commitment. It's known for its uh, passion and it's known for Um, the value that it provides to its people. So there are three principles from this book. And the first one is to invest in your staff and keep them happy at all times in order to achieve success. And this is something that I was taught a long, long time ago um, back in the retail world is that if you take care of your people, your people will take care of the consumer and the in-person. So when we invest time in our people, when we take care of them, We make them feel like they're a part of something bigger, and then they want to pass that on to those who then choose to work with us. Lesson number two, running a business is both science and art. A good executive knows how to combine the science and the art. Disney is a great example of management, and it's a harmonious balance of both sides of everything. Um, The scientific side includes the infrastructure, the services, and the products. And um, my brain is tired. And the art side um, is the running of the staff and the culture that you create from it. And then finally, the third lesson is adapt to changes, learn from the past, and anticipate the future. A good leader and administrator must frequently analyze the company's strategy, 
and adjust it because just how something was done in the past doesn't mean that's how it needs to be done in the future. And as organizations, especially association organizations coming from the meeting we just came from, we need to become more nimble. And that was actually some of the stuff that just caught past at NAR was to help us become more nimble. But even in our own regular businesses, we need to become nimble and adjust to changes as they come at us. So that is my booklet called Disney You by Doug Lipp, L-I-P-P. And that's it. Let's go bring on Will. The weather is getting colder and none of our veterans should be without the resources they need to get through this winter. That's why KCRAR's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee is partnering with Veterans Community Project for a donation drive this winter. If you're listening to this before December 15th, 2021, please consider donating to this drive to benefit VCP. They are doing great work for our veterans in need right here in Kansas City, and they are seeking donations for cold weather items, including wool socks, heavy gloves, hand warmers, heavy work boots. You can drop off your donations between now and December 15th, 2021 at any KCRAR office location. For more information about how you can get involved and to see a full list of the items VCP is needing, visit kcrar.com slash VCP. That's VCP as in Veterans Community Project. And if you happen to be listening to this after our drive ends on December 15th, please still consider donating to VCP. They're doing so much great work right here in Kansas City to house our local homeless veterans and they can use all the support we can give them. Now on to the show. Welcome back to Kansas City Real Talk brought to you by KCRAR. And we are here with Will Reuter, the Executive VP of the Home Builders Association of Greater Kansas City. Welcome, Will. We are excited to have you here with us today. Bobby and Alex, appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. So, I Will, give us a little bit of your background. What, what have you done in the past? How did you become the Executive VP of HBA? Just tell us who you are, Will. I appreciate that. So I grew up in a little town in western Kansas, uh, about 20 miles north of Hayes. You've probably heard of it thanks to um, uh, some recent events in uh, the University of Kansas. Jared Casey, the walk-on fullback, caught that two-point conversion for KU uh, to defeat Texas. He grew up in my little hometown. So uh, now I have another frame of reference to explain where I'm from because uh, uh, 20 miles north of Hayes wasn't getting it done for, uh, for a lot of people in the Kansas City metro. So I graduated from K-State, and I spent 12 years in Washington, D.C., doing housing and financial services policy for uh, then-Congressman Moran uh, and then-Senator Moran. And um, my wife and I, uh, we had two young children at the time and decided uh, that we uh, owed it to them to raise them in the best possible place to raise a family. And uh, Kansas City is about the only place on our list uh, for that to be that, uh, to, to qualify there. So we're in Kansas City now and had a great opportunity to join the, uh, the HBA. Uh, so I've been here about two and a half years, uh, kind of uh, a strange two and a half years to say the least, but uh, couldn't be happier to be here representing all things new home construction. Awesome. So as you're aware, there has not a lot of existing home inventory this year. I think as we all know, it just continues, keeps going on and on and on. Have you seen an increase in new home builds from buyers who couldn't find anything in the existing market? Well, uh, we have seen uh, an uptick in uh, the visibility of new home construction, just given the lack of you know, existing product on the shelf, so to speak. 
so there have been uh, additional people uh, seeking out new home construction that otherwise probably wouldn't have uh, considered it. Uh, maybe they were uh, a little worried about how uh, comprehensive a process would it be. Can I even afford a newly built home? You know, some of those historic uh, barriers uh, to, to new home construction for buyers. And, you know, with, with interest rates being what they were and the fact that all of those, ex many of those existing homes were escalating in cost, price wars, uh, the, uh, bidding wars uh, for, that, for that new home, for those uh, existing homes, uh, there was uh, a kind of a closing of the gap, so to speak, between uh, the resale inventory and the new home inventory. So yes, there has been kind of a, uh, a reinvigoration on the part of the uh, consumer in Kansas City uh, on, see, on, on the visibility of, of newly built homes. Well, I know that uh, because of material shortages and a variety of other things and economic factors that have been impacting the industry, um, there have been there's been kind of some downward pressure on margins that builders have had to combat. Um, and there have been some ways that they've been trying to help with that. Can you talk just a little bit about that and, uh, you know, cost plus and maybe a couple of other things that builders are doing to uh, to account for those struggles? Sure. So, you know, um... You know, many uh, home builders within their sales contracts have had uh, an escalation clause within those sales contracts for, for years, maybe for generations, uh, maybe didn't even realize they had it in there, but it was just part of kind of the standard contract and certainly had never considered actually exercising it. And just given the variability in, uh, you know, particularly lumber, that was kind of the, the poster child for uh, the product increases, the huge spikes in, you know, those, uh, those numbers for thousand board feet. I mean, when you start seeing lumber prices on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, you know that it is wild and wacky. That's not something that, you know, typically has a lot of, you know, regular consumer penetration. And so, uh, those escalation clauses were very valuable uh, in making certain that uh, there could be at least a uh, recoupment of some of those price increases uh, to allow for, you know, the capital necessary to secure that next lot, put that next home uh, in the ground, get it started. So, you know, you mentioned cost plus. There has been, um, uh, you know, there's such a variety of different price points. Some of these mechanisms are more suited uh, than, than others, depending on, you know, kind of what level you're building at. Some of these uh, are far more disproportionately impactful on some of those lower, more modestly priced newly built homes. You know, your, your three, your 350s, which are increasingly difficult to build anyway, absent all of the stuff that's happening um, in the supply chain. But, uh, you know, those escalation clauses loom large um, in, in those more modestly priced products. Um, but we have seen an uptick in the uh, use of allowances for uh, the use of materials. You know, previously, if you had, you know, an X number of tens of thousands uh, in your contract for allowances, people would be able to say, OK, uh, I'm going to I'm going to use that on my kitchen appliances and I'm going to get a top of the line stove, top of the line refrigerator, those kinds of things. Well, now many of those allowances are actually like, well, this is for uh, if your windows go crazy or if your garage door has uh, a, a, you know, a huge lead time or things like that. So really, it's not necessarily getting anyone uh, closer to that, uh, that kind of dream home. It's just getting the home done. Uh, without having to go back and ask for uh, additional dollars. So, you know, it has, it has created the need to be incredibly flexible and uh, communicative. And, uh, you know, there are 
uh, a lot of homes that are going in. Uh, maybe these builders have a, uh, a spec house and a build job, you know, somebody with a, a sales contract before construction even begins. And they've only got uh, the labor or materials to complete one of those. So obviously, you're going to take care of your customer on the build job side. And maybe that spec house, you know, sits a little bit longer. You know, the electrician can come to one house uh, to get it pre-wired. Uh, they're going to go to the place that already has the buyer. In it. So some of these spec houses are taking longer to build, which is having a back end impact on the, on the price at the end for what it's ultimately listed for. Well, one of the things that you, oh, go ahead, Bobby. No, go, Alex. I would not want to cut in line in front of you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I love the fact that you brought up the fact that we don't have very many homes in that 300, 350, even 400 price bracket anymore. It's increasingly difficult to find. One of our past guests was Nate Johnson, and he talked a lot about smart growth and uh, figuring out a way to create smarter zoning regulations and working with municipalities to uh, create uh, a better environment for home builders. Um, and where is where does the HBA fall uh, on working on some of those guidelines and working with municipalities to ease up some of the code uh, restrictions and those kinds of things? Tell us a little bit about what you guys do for us on that level. Yeah, that, that is one of the most significant responsibilities and uh, frankly benefits uh, of the Kansas City Home Builders Association is that we do go into uh, these individual permitting authorities across the metro and just let them know, um, you know, what uh, perhaps modifications uh, to their existing code are. Uh, if they're wanting to, to pull back to uh, get a greater variety of housing able to be started in their community. You know, Kansas and Missouri are both, you know, home rule states. So there is not a statewide building code in either Missouri or Kansas, which means every municipality, every county uh, has the uh, ability to have their own individual uh, building code. So we've got 57 different permitting authorities within the broader Kansas City Metro. So there's 57 potential iterations of what uh, is allowed to be built just from a vertical construction standpoint uh, in the Metro. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, one of the tools that we've used to kind of help uh, people uh, understand that, that, uh, uh, that role that the regulatory environment plays in the overall construction of a housing market, not construction of a house, but the construction of the market itself, uh, is related to uh, five L's. Uh, if you can think of this in, uh, uh, in the terms of five different L's, they are lots or, you know, the land that the home is going to sit on. It's the labor, uh, the, the labor component that's going to be used to, uh, to stick build that home. It is uh, the laws, the regulations. Um, it is the lumber. Uh, the, the building materials associated with it, and the lending, you know, the supply and the cost of the capital or the credit to, uh, to accomplish that. So it's really the confluence of those five elements that create what is the housing market. Now, as much as I would like to say that our industry dictates precisely what is allowed to be built and, and exactly what we want to be built, we're market participants. Uh, we don't get to make all of those decisions. So that L related to laws and regulations is one of those uh, one of those items that that uh, constitutes the housing market that we actually have more control over. Uh, you know, we can't we can't as a as a local HBA or a municipality or as, as a region dictate what the cost of materials is. Uh, you know, we can't you know we we can't control the broader macroeconomic economy uh, with regard to the the availability of mortgage credit or of construction loans. Uh, you know, there's so 
in, in looking at what we can control, going in and talking to city councils, county commissions and saying, hey, these things that you're, um, you're proposing, they sound really nice. I mean, who doesn't want a wider sidewalk in green space? I mean, it's all things that we absolutely uh, want as part of our quality of life. Um, but it is going to have an impact on, uh, on density, which has an impact on, you know, whether how, how much it's going to take to recoup those fixed costs uh, necessary to put a lot uh, in the ground to get it buildable. And those, uh, all of those costs aggregate. And at the end of the day, it's the consumer that is going to be paying for those in an indirect way. Yeah. Um, I have never heard the five L's before and I absolutely love those. And they're so easy to like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I love it. It's somebody in the home warranty industry once explained peach to me is that's what they have. That's the things they cover in home warranties. I will totally remember the five L's from this now. So, um, but speaking of one of the other L's, you mentioned the second one was labor. We've seen worker shortages everywhere. Is the construction industry also being affected by worker shortages and how are you overcoming it? Um, well, you know, it's, um, it's, it's really not something that we're, we're overcoming. It's something that we're, we're mitigating uh, in large part. You know, going into the pandemic, there were more than 400,000 residential construction job vacancies in the country. And so uh, that was certainly exacerbated, made worse um, uh, when states like Illinois and Pennsylvania didn't even deem construction an essential activity. So you saw an all out stoppage of, of home building there. So there was a whole bunch of, of people uh, that went on unemployment that were skilled tradesmen. Uh, mm -hmm. We did not have that happen in Kansas City from day one, uh, metro-wide. Uh, the residential construction industry was essential, so uh, there was no hiccups. However, you know, socially distant job sites, um, you know, uh, uh, if, uh, if someone uh, came down with a positive case on a crew, that whole crew was home rather than just that one individual. And so it did become a, uh, a sequencing issue. Uh, how are you going to make sure, you know, in a, in a home, on, on a job site where you may have had two or three different trades all working in the home at, at different uh, points throughout the day, there was only one trade in that home. So what, you know, mm -hmm. could have been accomplished in one day was all of a sudden three days just for that same amount of work. And so it did extend construction timelines. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, one of the trends that was also uh, kind of came out of the pandemic is we've seen a reduction in uh, the amount of enrollments at traditional four-year universities. You know, the value proposition for a four-year degree is, is different than what it was mm -hmm. uh, pre-pandemic. And so, uh, you know, we have been uh, involved with 12 different school districts around the metro representing about 30 different high schools in working with their career and technical education teachers as well as superintendents, principals and guidance counselors to talk about the opportunities that exist within the skilled trades. Now we don't um, ever wanna come across like we were saying college is, uh, is, is a fool's errand. That's not what you should be doing. No, we're, we're saying that we need to present our um, emerging workforce, our young people with all of the opportunities that exist and let them make the best decision for them. And so the fact that there are opportunities and it is an aging workforce within the trades, it really is, um, uh, if not an emergency, an emerging emergency uh, mm -hmm. to make sure that we've got the ability to get some younger people in the pipeline to learn from those craftsmen who have been in the space for you know, their entire career, uh, rather than trying to learn the skilled trades from a book or from an online course. That's, that's not how this works. And so um, we have seen uh, uh, an uptick in our kind of success rate, so to speak, as to 
uh, you know, people looking for opportunities that may not require that, uh, that credential, that diploma, uh, to go out and be a, uh, a contributing member of society, uh, financially successful, stable, um, because for th that is what this industry is, is, is mm -hmm. stable for all intents and purposes. I mean, we're going to pull around 6,000 single family permits uh, this year, maybe a little bit more. Um, but in talking with, you know, folks like yourselves at uh, KCRIR that are, you know, in the trenches in the, in the sales uh, space, uh, as well as economists and, and, and a lot of uh, uh, the people that are paying a lot of attention to uh, building and development in Kansas City, this is a market that needs about 8,500 single family homes newly built every year just to satisfy demand. So if it's a 2,500 or 3,000 home delta this year, it'll be a 6,000 uh, home delta next year and, and 9,000 the year after. So it's only going to be a compounding problem. And so if we are an, an underbuilt market, which by all objective measures we are, the opportunities exist in an enormous way to, uh, to help populate the trades and help accomplish that. And that's going to keep prices down for everyone. Yeah. It's probably been, you know, uh, you know, a decade or so, maybe a little bit more. It was probably about five months between handshake to handing over a keys and a house gets yeah. built in between those two things. Now that is 10, 11, 12 months for the same house. And so if you're literally looking at a twice as long construction process, you're looking at twice as much interest uh, accruing over the life of that construction loan, which is going to have a price impact. So people may not be getting any more home. They're just going to be getting a more expensive home. And so that labor component is a significant contributor to that extended construction timeline. A lot of people, you know, along with talking about the labor market, I hear people talk about uh, the number of builders that we have in the marketplace. How does the number of builders that we have in the marketplace, you know, if we've got a, if we're short on labor, does the number of builders that we have in the marketplace really make that big of a difference? Um, and, you know, what do you see there? You know, uh, I'm certain that you guys uh, will will use a similar talking points about how you know Kansas City is a unique place. Uh, it's it's the place that you know my wife and I chose to raise our family because it's so unique in a lot of different ways. It's very unique in the home building space as well. We are the only top 50 residential construction market in the country that does not have a top 50 nationally ranked builder in it. So mm -hmm. these are mm -hmm. these are uh, hometown home builders. Uh, they're, they're building, you know, these are homes built by the people of Kansas City for the people of Kansas City. Um, uh, one of the things I've shared with uh, city councils and county commissioners is that, you know, when you buy a newly built home in Kansas City, you're buying local. Uh, mm -hmm. So trying to, you know, just kind of help illustrate that. So, you know, the HBA represents about 250 uh, individual uh, building companies that are out pulling single family permits, you know pre-economic uh, downturn, 08 and 09, that number was north of 600, close to 700 uh, building companies. So we do have fewer companies uh, doing the work. You know, it's, it's kind of a, a question of, well, if you need more healthcare, why don't you just build more hospitals? Well, you've got to populate those hospitals with doctors and nurses and equipment and all those kinds of things. So it's not just like having the square footage, you know, the, the, uh, the, the total volume, it's about being able to actually do the work. And so, you know, I think the, the labor component, uh, I, I don't know of a, of a company uh, within uh, the residential construction space, be it a builder, be it a, um, a, a service provider, a bank for a mortgage underwriter, or, you know, some of that administrative help or uh, electricians, plumbers, all of all, everyone 
would absolutely hire a candidate if a candidate came across her desk. There's not anybody that's going to turn help away. And so, um, you know, I think the, the number of building companies is less of a, uh, 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 an issue than the people that would populate mm-hmm. those companies. So, so, Will, we're coming towards the end of our time that we've asked of you today, and we want to be really respectful of that time. But before we finish up, I want to know, what else should we be asking? What else should we be talking about? What, what haven't we brought up today that's a really important issue for the HBA or that we need to make our listeners aware of? Well, I, I think we would probably uh, just go back to uh, one of the things we talked about at the outset that Alex asked about with regard to uh, laws or regulations or zoning. Um, you know, the, we will, as an industry, build whatever is allowed to be built, mm-hmm. you know, and so the greater flexibility that cities and counties are providing, uh, the, the more innovation that will occur. And so if we want, you know, a more diverse housing product, we have to have a more diverse regulatory approach as a metro. So, you know, one of the things to keep an eye on is an ongoing debate um, in the city of Kansas City, Missouri right now with regard to uh, the energy code, the, uh, the level of energy efficiency as a bare minimum allowed to move forward with, with new home construction. There is a proposal out there uh, that would make Kansas City, Missouri the most restrictive um, uh, building code, certainly in the region, if not the country from a, from a single family standpoint. And that would have an enormous impact on uh, regionally the ability to put in uh, a more diverse array of housing. And, you know, most people out there are engaged in some kind of affordable housing, attainable housing, lack of inventory, discussion, focus group, working group, task force, something out there. There are conversations going across the metro. Mm -hmm. And so if it has been diagnosed that we do have a, a quote unquote housing crisis or a, or, or a lack of a cohesive approach to housing, then it really um, should cause someone to take a pause and say, is this the right time to be making housing more difficult to build and to reducing the amount of people that can afford that housing? You know, in our market for every $1,000 added to the price of a new home, 1,238 families in Kansas City are priced out of the new home market. So when you start thinking about $1,000, $2,000, $3,000, $15,000 being added from a regulatory standpoint, you're talking about making fifteen to 20000 or more families no longer able to get into this uh, newly built, safe, efficient product. So the, the stakes are really high. And so when, when people will come and say, well, it's only 300 bucks, it's only 500 bucks, you know, that, that's change you lose in the couch cushions when you're talking about the price of a new home, right? But, Absolutely. It is, but it is a disqualifying amount of money for an increasingly large number of Kansas Cityans. Well, um, I'm so glad to hear you say all of that because the, mm-hmm. the reality is that, that what I see from new home construction right now, and then Bobby, I'm sure you see something similar, but, you know, building in the five hundred to $800,000 range does nothing to alleviate the pressure that we're feeling in the marketplace because the primary pressure that we're feeling in the marketplace starts from the bottom. Our first-time home buyers do not have inventory uh, to, to choose from. And the people that own the inventory that first-time home buyers would be interested in aren't buying five hundred to $800,000 homes. That's not their step up. And so that, that whole... It, Everything you're saying to me is 
is is on point. And I hope that there are ways that uh, the regional association can uh, can mm-hmm. help you in those efforts. And if there's ever anything we can do, uh, let us let us know. Well, I, I appreciate that uh, enormously, Alex, and, and so do uh, our members, of which we we share a, a, a number mm-hmm. of members. You know, I've got uh, as part of the Home Builders Association, you know, uh, a couple hundred uh, sales professionals within the organization. So we do have uh, a great degree of um, you know uh, a symbiotic relationship here, mm-hmm. and so. You know, you, you described perfectly the, the traffic jam that exists in uh, the, the housing market. Uh, there's no on-ramp to speak of for the first-time home buyer, and there's really no off-ramp for, um, you know, the empty nester that would, you know, have historically divested themselves of the family home and to move into something uh, smaller or on a single level or something like that. So uh, you just don't get the liquidity in the market that we've experienced in the past. So we need to, you know, be able to build some stuff on the on that front end at the lower price point and to build some lower price point on the back end as well to give um, uh, those people an opportunity uh, to divest themselves of that single family home. You don't need four bedrooms, five bedrooms, those kinds of things, but a family does. Um, but you also want to stay in your, your same social circle. You want to go to the same, you know, your same uh, church. You want to go to the same restaurants and have your same social circle. So you don't want to, you know, have to move completely to a different zip code or on the other, uh, across the state line to, uh, to retire. That's not what, what people want. So um, we've got uh, a lot of, I think, opportunity as a region to diversify our housing product, uh, provided that, uh, you know, uh, all of the stakeholders associated with it are approaching it uh, honestly and saying, this is what we need. And this is what a more diverse housing product looks like. Let's find a way to get to yes. Love it. Well, well, thank you so much for your time here with us today. Like you've dropped some truth bombs. I like, I really don't know that I've normally just sat here and just like clapped behind the scenes because no one's going to see me clapping. And yet you've said some really important things. And so I hope that our members and listeners will hear what you've said today um, and we can all find a way to work together. So thank you so much for your time. You're welcome back here anytime. Anything happens, you need to let us know. Let us, we're here for you. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, for uh, any of your listeners or anyone within your organization who would like any more information, um, I I literally get paid to talk about these things. So I would love (laughs) to talk to them about these things uh, offline, online, uh, wherever. Um, And so uh, please shoot me an email. It's really easy. Will at kchba.org. And I'd be happy to visit. Whoa, that's a hard email, man. I know. Uh, Well, you know, I did work uh, on Capitol Hill for a dozen (laughs) years, so uh, I had to keep things simple. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for your time, Will. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Will. Thanks so much for having me. I'll take care.